This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Couvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. The phrase, the sword of the Lord, is found six times in the Bible in four different books. By looking at these usages of that phrase, I think we can learn some interesting things about God's working in the affairs of men. And this morning I want to look at five things that should exhort us to faithfulness just because of this one phrase. In Judges chapter 7, we'll read verses 16 through 22. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand, and with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me, and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that, as I do, so shall ye do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all them that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of, uh, of the camp, and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and an hundred men that were with him came to the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch, and they had but newly set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and break the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew their trumpets and break the pitchers that held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp. And all the hosts ran and cried and fled. And the three hundred blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even uh, throughout all the host. And the host fled to Beth uh, Sitha in Zerath, and the border of Almeholha unto Tabith. The first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture, and the two usages of this phrase in this passage we just read, is that we do not do battle in our own strength. We need to understand that as Christians, we do not succeed in battle because of who we are or because of how mighty we are, how eloquent we are, or anything else. It's all about God's working in our lives. Let's just take a look at what happened right here. We see Gideon's battle. God had called Gideon to defeat the Midianites. Now, Gideon was a farmer or a sheep herder or maybe both, but he was not a soldier. It seems, as I've looked to trying to find how large the host of the Midianites was, uh, I didn't find something that gave me it directly, but it seemed like it was somewhere around 135,000 in the host of the Midianites. Gideon had 3,200 men to start. Look at verse 3. Now therefore, go to... Proclaim in the end of the year the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. He started out with thirty-two thousand to go up against a hundred and thirty-five thousand men. Now that doesn't seem like it's a very good ratio, does it? But God said, that's too many. He says, you've got too many soldiers out there. So we don't need anywhere near that many. And so he said, all those that are afraid, go home. And 22,000 were afraid to go to battle and went home. But God said that that even the 10,000 were too many in verse 4. And the Lord said unto Gideon, the people are yet too many. 
Bring them down to the water, and I will try them for, uh, for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, This shall not go with thee with thee, the same shall let him go. They went down to drink, and it was the way they drank that determined who went and who did not go. And in verse 7, And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lap uh, will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go, every man to, unto his place. Going up on an army of 135,000 men, three hundred doesn't seem like they can do the job. Gideon divides his 300 men into three groups of 100, and he sends them out to various to the opposite sides of the camps and gets the camp somewhat surrounded with his 300 men. He armed the men with stupid weapons. He arms them with a trumpet. Now, trumpets make lots of noise, but they don't usually kill people. Empty pitchers. Again, you might hit somebody over the head, but by the time you get through one or two, the pitcher's going to be broken. And lamps. I don't going to burn down their tents. I mean, just imagine what Gideon and these men must have thought. Well, they're going out to defeat 135,000 people with 300 men and weapons like that. But they did what God said. On command, they sounded the trumpets, broke the pitchers, exposed the lamps, and shouted, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Doesn't seem to make any more sense than it did when Joshua walked around Jericho. And the enemy were so frightened by what they saw and what they heard that they fought with each other and they fled. It was dark. I mean, there was light all around them, but it was dark where they were and they drew their swords and, they, and, they, and, and everybody's running in confusion and they started killing each other and they fled. The rest of the story, they, they went other places and they were followed after and they were defeated in a grand way. But what do we learn from this that affects our lives? The first thing we need to learn is the battle is not ours, it's the Lord's. As we try and reach a lost world, the battle is not ours, it's the Lord's. It's God's job to make sure that we have victory. When we're called to battle, we should never fear. Look over in Isaiah, if you would, chapter 41 and verse 10. Pray thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. He's with us, we shouldn't be afraid. As we go out and do whatever it is that God has called us to do to advance His kingdom on this earth, whatever battle He's called us to, He's with us. Jesus said, Lo, I am with thee always, even unto the end of the world. He's our God. We should not faint. Remember what Jesus told His disciples when they were looking forward to what was going to come afterwards? And He says, Don't worry about what you're going to say when you get up before the magistrates. You'll know what to say when you get there. It'll be given to you at that time. He gives us the strength to go. If we go on our own strength, we're sure to fail. Remember what what happened with Paul when he prayed three times to have the thorn in the flesh removed and God said that his strength was manifest in Paul's weakness. You see, if we're able, if Gideon had had gone out there with 200,000 troops and overcome the 135,000, who would have got the glory? Gideon. And his troops. But he beat him with 300 men. We know who's the power behind the battle. He gives us the strength. He is our help. He's the one that knows exactly what's necessary to win the battle. He upholds us with the right hand of his righteousness because he always does what is right. He can't fail. 
when you do what's right, and God always does what's right, we're assured of victory. When we do things God's way, He receives the glory, and we find success. That's pretty neat. We let Him do the work. Let Him be the strength. I mean, we have to do our part, do what He tells us, but we just obey Him, and it doesn't make sense to us. And He gets all the glory, and we have success. That's what Joshua was talking about when he talked about meditating on His Word day and night. And when we do what it says, then we have success. So the first thing that we need to learn, and we can learn from this issue of the sword of the Lord, is that when we do things right, God's sword is there to make sure the battle is won. We don't battle in our own strength. We battle in His. Look in First uh, Chronicles chapter 21. That's the next time where we see this used. First Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 12. Either three years famine... Or three months to be destroyed before thy foes, uh, while that the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the, the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coast of Israel. Now therefore advise thyself, what word shall I bring again to him that sent me? This passage of Scripture giving David a choice between three years of famine, three months being beat up by their enemies, or three days with God beaten up on them with the sword of the Lord. In verse 1, we find out what it's all about. And Satan stood up with Israel and provoked David to number Israel. David had been told not to count the people, and he chose to count them. Look in verse 8. And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I beseech thee, do away with the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. So David acknowledged his sin, and then God gives him three choices of how God's going to deal with his sin. They could have three years of famine. You could have three months of defeat and submission to their enemies. Or you'd have three days of the sword of the Lord upon the land. And then he mentions some pretty bad things. He had the three choices. What choice he made is not important for our discussion this morning. The things that we learn is that God does chastise his people when they do wrong. Those who are not chastised are not his. Look with me if you would over in Hebrews chapter 12. If you can live ignoring God's principles and not be spanked by God, then there's a real problem. Look in verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. If you're not chastised when you live in sin, if God doesn't do something to cause you to, to suffer consequences for the sin that you're involved in, if He's not spanking you in some way and trying to correct you, then it says quite simply, you are not His child. Now that could be a sobering thought to some people. But we're not to think that it's a small thing when we're chastised of God. It's not a small thing when we chasten our children, when we correct our children, when we do it right, when we do it in love as proper parents. It's not a small thing. There's a goal behind that, and that's to make our children be what they ought to be. It's to keep our children from having problems in their lives later on. So it's important that we understand that when God brings chastisement to us, it's for our good, and it's not a small thing. We're not to faint when He rebukes us. When He shows us what we're doing wrong, we're not to throw up our hands and give up. 
His chastisement is proof of his love for us. You know, we think love is all sweetness and honey poured over somebody's head. Folks, that's nothing but a sticky mess. Love is doing what the other person needs for their own good. And sometimes correcting us is exactly what we need for our own good. Good fathers correct their children. Would God be a good father if he did not correct his children? God is treating us as if we were his children. And if you're here this morning and you're you're saved, you are a child of God. I'm glad that we don't have to wait like people in some other religions for years and years and have go through committee trial or uh, reviews and everything else and then finally get, get some man to say you're a saint. The moment you become a child of God, you're a saint. And if we sin and he does not chastise us, we're not his children. So that's something else that we learn from this phrase, the sword of the Lord. God was using the sword of the Lord to chastise his children. The next time we see this passage of Scripture is in Isaiah chapter 34 and verse 6. For the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. This passage of Scripture is God using the sword for the judgment of his enemies. God punishes here Israel's enemies, and the sword is filled with the blood of Idumea because of what they had done. Idumea was a nation that often opposed Israel, that often sought their harm. Now, there's another name that you see more often for this nation. It's Edom. The whole subject of this whole passage right here is their punishment. God is using his sword to punish his enemies and the enemies of his people. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, we don't have to avenge our enemies. God will take care of it. There are some principles here that will really change our lives if we follow them. We're to live peaceably with all people as much as is possible. Now, that's individuals or that's nations. We should live peaceably with other nations as a nation. But when they kill 3,000 of our people, then that kind of makes it impossible to live peaceably with them. As individuals, we should live peaceably with everybody around us. We're not to allow our wrath if it can be avoided. Folks, anger is not a bad thing if it's proper anger. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. So we can be angry and not sin. But if we just fly off the handle as soon as something goes wrong without thinking things through, if we just slash out at people because they didn't do it our way, that kind of anger is sin. And we're not to do that. We're we're to be a forgiving people. We're to avoid wrath as much as possible. When they won't allow us to avoid it, then we go ahead and do what's necessary. Now one thing, that passage of Scripture that says, be angry and sin not, also says don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So get it taken care of as quickly as possible. What we have to do is remember that vengeance doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. We don't have to worry about getting even. 
if getting even is necessary, and folks, oftentimes it is not. The example I used in the Sunday school class this morning is if you're at school and you're just about ready to get a drink out of the drinking fountain and somebody else comes and pushes in and gets a drink before you, let them do it, then get your drink and go on your way and forget about it because it's not important. Why should we try and get even with that person? We're to live peaceably as much as we possibly can with people. We're to treat our enemies with kindness. I mean, if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them to drink. If they're cold, put a blanket around them. That's the way we're supposed to treat our enemies. And what happens when we do? We heap coals of fire on their head. There are a couple of things that can happen. First of all, there can be some very minor coals of fire on their head. They can feel guilty, realize their error, and repent, and you can gain a brother. That would be ideal, wouldn't it? But just suppose that that you treat them nicely and they continue to treat you badly and and, uh, they never repent of it and they go on and they'll stand before God one day and be judged for it. Coals of fire heaped upon their head. It's not for us to worry about. It's not for us to be concerned about. If they don't repent, God's judgment will be more severe upon them as a result of it. We're not to be overcome by evil. We're not to allow evil to do two things. First of all, we're not to let it get us down. I mean, we can look at the things in this world, and it is pretty bad. I mean, I remember very well the late 40s and the 1950s, and I'll tell you something. Compared with today, life was a bowl of cherries. Listen to the news. All you hear is about people killing people, about people raping kids. That's all you hear about all the time. And that can get you down. You can get depressed and say, I'm just going to crawl back in the corner and shut the doors and have nothing to do with this world. No, don't be overcome with evil. Another way that you can become overcome with evil is evil can get a hold of you and you can start practicing evil practices just like the world because you're so influenced by it. That's why we need to be in church. That's why we need to be in the Word of God. That's why we need to spend time in prayer so we're not overcome with evil. By the way, the solution to both overcoming is the same. But overcome evil with good. The Bible talks about those that that criticize us for our good deeds because we do what's right and we get criticized for it. But it says in the day of visitation that we'll be justified and God will be glorified. We're to overcome evil with good. We're to do what's right all the time. This idea that situations determine what you do is wrong. You do what you're supposed to do all the time, no matter what the circumstances are. Even... If you have to get cast into a fiery furnace, you do what's right. And God will take care of you. I think of the fiery furnace and the three Hebrew children that were cast in and how God preserved them from that. But I also think of Polycarp who was burned at the stake and God did not preserve him from being burned at the stake. And he died. And where did he go? To be with his Lord. (laughs) What could have been better? Actually, he got a quicker reward than the Hebrew children. If you stop and think about it. So we learn the judgment of God and his enemies is up to him and let him use his sword to take care of it and not try and do it ourselves that's what we learn from the sword of the Lord in this passage the next one is in Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 10 many pastors have destroyed my vineyard they have trodden my portion underfoot they have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness they have made it desolate and being desolate it mourneth unto me The whole land is made desolate because no man layeth it to heart. The spoilers are come upon all high places through the wilderness. For the sword of the Lord shall devour from the one end of the land even to the other. 
of the land, no flesh shall have peace. They have sown wheat, but shall reap thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but shall not profit. They shall be ashamed of your revenues because of the fierce anger of the Lord. This one talks about the sword of the Lord being used to cleanse God's people. It talks about pastors who've done much damage. When I started this message, I didn't realize how relevant it was to what we're trying to do right now with our evangelism seminar and our Grow Outreach program and things like this, but you'll see that as we go through this. But God's harvest is destroyed when pastors are not faithful. How many churches are there this morning where the authority for their preaching is Reader's Digest or some other worldly authority? Churches out there that call themselves churches, that profess to be churches of God. You know, this affects the whole land. There was a time when even what we look at today and consider liberal denominations were preaching the Word of God. And people were getting saved in those churches. And and righteousness was being stood for. The whole land is suffering today because that's gone by the wayside. Desolation comes because men just don't care. There will be no peace because of the sword of the Lord. Some of the things that we see in this land and around the world. I saw the mudslides in the Philippines. And I forget how many thousands of people were buried in those mudslides. Folks, I don't know. I can't say for sure. But I look at the hurricanes and even 9-11. I look at all those things. How much of that is the sword of the Lord chastising a nation who's turned its back on God? I, I can't speak specifically and say these things are God's judgment. Because even when you're good, bad things happen. But when I look at what's happening in this nation, I wonder. It's interesting here. It says they sow wheat and reap thorns. But didn't we just study the law of sowing and reaping? And if you plant wheat, you get wheat. If you plant carrots, you don't get tomatoes. But this says they sow wheat and reap thorns. How could that be? If the law of sowing and reaping is true. And it is. But you see, if you look at the parable of the sowers, of the, of the sower rather, and you have the four different types of soil, you can sow the wheat But if the ground is not properly prepared, if it's not broken up, if the rocks aren't removed, and if the weeds aren't taken out, you will not reap a harvest of what you sowed. You will reap the harvest of thorns. See, they had so poorly prepared the land. They had done it so wrongly. They had gone away from from doing it God's way that the soil was so unprepared that what they sowed did not germinate and something else did. So what do we learn? Religious leaders have great responsibility to the truth and to God's precepts. Religious leaders better remember pastors, Sunday school teachers, wherever you are that you're a leader and you're teaching people, parents, fathers. We have a responsibility to the truth. When spiritual leaders... When religious leaders, when pastors, parents, whoever it may be, when they compromise, the whole of society suffers. And folks, this is where it gets down to where we are as a church right now. The greatest compromise of our day is sowing wheat in unprepared soil. I believe that's why we're seeing so many churches go to worldliness. Because we've sown the seed of the gospel in soil that has not been prepared to receive it. And therefore, we're reaping thorns, false converts. People who are making professions of faith. 
Some of them are even coming into churches and being very active. And some of them are even growing up in churches and going off to Bible colleges and becoming pastors and Sunday school teachers and school teachers in Christian schools. Because they've been taught if they do all these things, they'll get to heaven. It's not about who they are. It's about what they're doing. Until the field is properly prepared, it will not produce fruit. And if it's not producing the proper fruit, the sword of the Lord has to do some purifying. has to go through the land and destroy some things so we can get back to where we were. If you go back in history and you trace Baptist history, there was initially a time of persecution. And it grew like wildfire. There was reasonable peace and you started having compromise and you ended up getting what we now call the Catholic Church. But the Baptist churches, although they didn't carry that name exactly like we do at that time, but those who are our ancestors, were forced underground and they were persecuted and they grew. When the Reformation came, there were Baptist churches in every land in Europe because the gospel was being planted in fertile soil and it was, re- and it was going out and there was growth. And we came to America... And in America, Baptists got us religious liberty. We would not have religious liberty was it not for the Baptists who stood for it. And when they were offered to be the state church, refused it. Otherwise, we would have had a state church and it would have been looking down on everybody who wasn't Lutheran, because that's what the state church would have been, and we would have been persecuted. But now we had freedom of religion, and we started growing like wildfire with that freedom, and we started compromising. Because we became popular and we, and we sought to be popular. And look at where Baptist churches are standing today. So many of them falling by the wayside. And God's going to need that sword. He used the sword to get us where we are. He may need to use it again to get us straightened out. The last passage is in Jeremiah chapter 47, verses 6 and 7. O thou sword of the Lord, how long will it be ere thou be quiet? Put up thyself in, into thy scabbard. Rest and be still. How long? How can it be quiet, seeing the Lord hath given it a charge against Ascalon and against the seashore? There hath he appointed it. The question here is how long before the sword of the Lord is going to be put away? The sword of the Lord must do its job. In the Old Testament, we have these six times where it's called the sword of the Lord. In the New Testament, we have the word of God, which is called the sword of the Spirit. And it is the sword which we wield today. The sword cannot be quiet until the job is done. Gaza and Ascalon were being punished by God when this question is asked. And the answer that comes back, not until the job's done. So how long are we going to see the sword of the Lord wielded on earth? Until the job's done. In each case, his sword will be used until the job's done. It assures victory. In Judges with Gideon. The sword of the Lord assured victory, and it assures victory for for His people. It will chastise until we repent. If God wields the sword of the Lord in in your life as a Christian, it will stay there and keep active until you repent. Then He can put it back in the scabbard for a while. It will bring God's enemies to repentance or condemnation. It will make God's people desolate until they follow His plan. But you know, folks, as we go through all of these uh, uses of the, of the sword of the Lord, and I really am happy that God put this one last, because this one carries something else with it that none of the others do. There is hope that one day it will be put away. Look with me, if you would, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. 
And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for these former things are passed away. The day is coming when there will be no more tears. The day is coming when there will be no more death, when there will be no more sorrow, when there will be no more crying and there will be no more pain. Boy, I'm looking forward to that day. There will be a day when the Lord takes His sword and sticks it in His scabbard, never to pull it out again. The sword of the Lord is a symbol of God's power. In the passages where we see it used, it shows His power in the lives of those who allow it to work. Gideon. Remember, in Gideon's case, it was the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. When we walk in God's power, we walk according to His precepts, His sword becomes our sword. And we have it there with us to bring victory. It teaches us how His power is used to chastise His children because of His love for them. It's a warning to the enemies of His wrath against them and of the judgment that will come upon them if they don't repent. We learn that when spiritual leaders depart from God's precept, God will use the sword to remove peace until things are made right. And finally, we learn that God cannot put away His sword until the job is done. But when the job is done, we learn that happiness and blessing will be the lot of His children. You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina. Dr. Kuvert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, solidfoundationministries.com, or call 828-244-6505. Remember, the Christian life is not about you. It's about God receiving the glory.